Have you found that that's a mindset that a lot of leaders have? Everything is very performance-driven. That's just the paradigm that a lot of us are locked into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you have to break the old paradigm first. Yeah. You know, you've got to start letting things go. What we would probably call in the Christian world submitting to God. Mm-hmm. But I look at it in a different way. It's really submitting and letting things go of your own self and submitting to what God has for you, what he wants for you. Welcome to Eternal Leadership. I'm Steve Ryder, and you just heard my co-host, John Ramstead, talking with Steve Haynes, the director of the Faith at Work division at The Navigators. Steve sat down recently with John and myself at Mission Coffee Roasters here in Colorado Springs. Well, we're here today with Steve Haynes, who I was introduced to by a, a great friend of mine and mentor, Steve Fideski. And Steve has just an incredible life story that I'm just excited to share with all of you from uh, a career in the military and working in the army serving under Colin Powell uh, to at the highest levels of government working as a presidential advisor but what is most exciting now is how he's taken all those leadership lessons in his life and he's just taken those and sewn into so many people in this world to equip them to accomplish things that they didn't even know were possible until they started working with Steve and they were mentored with Steve and what Steve has been able to reveal them through their relationship with, with God and Christ. So, Steve, I would love for you to just start out and just tell us your story, your background, and, and bring people, let people just know who you are. Sure. Well, I love that, and thank you very much for inviting me. This is a very special treat. I kind of grew up in a pretty uh, dysfunctional family. Uh, my mom and dad uh, separated at a very young age. Both of them had an affair pretty much at the same time. My brother was shipped to my mom's side of the family to be raised, and I was shipped mm-hmm. to my father's side of the family to be raised. My great-grandfather, a lot of stories there, but bottom line is he uh, ran away at 12 years old to be a cowboy, drive cattle out in the West from West Virginia. It, I mean, he moved out this way. And then uh, at 16, he became a deputy of Wyatt Earp. Uh, okay. A lot of fun stories there. <laughs> but um, So I lived with him for about uh, six or seven years. Grew up wanting to be a cowboy. Uh, and when I moved back in with my, fa- my dad and my mom, they got back together when I was probably around 10 or so and uh, pulled the family back together again. They hadn't divorced in that whole period of time. And we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and then eventually Fairfield. And I always wanted to be a cowboy, so I kind of grew up on a farm ranch type thing and got into horses. My first horse I bought at uh, the age, ripe old age of 10 years old. Uh, I bought it for $35 out of a magazine. It was a wild Mustang from Arizona and didn't tell my dad I was buying it until we went to pick it up at the trade at the train station. <laughs> How'd that go over? Not very well. <laughs> they drug him out of the train into the corral and took all this harness and stuff off of him. He was shackled, muzzled, and, and blindfolded. And this uh, horse jumped up and came after my dad with his mouth wide open. My dad just dove over the fence and turned to me and said, I don't want to see you near that horse or I'll kill you. <laughs> So it was a good year before I could get close to him and it's apples and carrots and tons of oats. And finally, one Saturday morning, I woke up and said, okay, today's the day. And so I went out and saddled him up and slipped off the, the, the corral fence onto his back. And he looked at me like, really? You want to do this? You know. <laughs> and after six dumps, I finally got him settled down. And uh, he was just a big baby after that. So you were thrown off six times? Six in a times, row. yeah. Yeah. That's some perseverance. Eight dust. <laughs> but uh, he, after that, he really was a baby. I mean, he just followed me into the house one time. My mom was like, get that horse out of the house. <laughs> so um, grew up around horses. My dad took me out one time between uh, graduating from high school and whatever I was going to do next and said, uh, no such thing as cowboys anymore. Get over it. I was devastated, had no direction in life, No, mm-hmm. didn't know what I wanted to be or do or who I really wanted to be inside. I was very shy and bashful, believe it or not. Uh, I can remember one time a, a waitress, uh, I needed ketchup for my french fries, and, and I didn't want to ask the waitress for ketchup, and my dad forced me to do it, and I cried like a baby. That's how shy I was. Hmm. And um, so um, sometime in the middle of summer, my dad came up in the choir and said, don't you think it's time that you did something with your life? Well, I knew what he wanted me to do, and that was to go forward. And I did, and they all come and cried and prayed over me, but there was really no change in my heart. I still didn't have any direction in life, was really 
just kind of floundering out there in the world, you know, no leadership, no, my father was not the best of fathers in the world, and uh, probably because his father was not the best of fathers in the world, and it just, that was a domino effect. And so I uh, thought, well, you know, I'll go be a missionary, that sounds like fun, swinging through the trees with monkeys and riding elephants, you know, back and forth, and so I went to New Tribes Bible Institute, uh, and on September 27, 1967, through a series of events that scared everybody in the school, uh, I went to the dean and he led me to Christ through Romans 4, 4, and 5. To him that worketh is reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, and see, so, what, what prompted that, that interaction for you? I don't go to it in a lot in detail, but basically it was... Um, uh, one of the young ladies in the school was demon possessed, and uh, there were actually she had five demons in her, and the deans came and cast these demons out of her, and the next day about three fourths of the school took off. They said, well, "This is what missionary work is. I'm, I don't want anything to do with it," and they left school. Wow. And so I was petrified out of my skin after seeing this all night long. This girl did some incredible things. She had this dark gravelly voice these demons were speaking through her so i went to the dean uh of the school dr kaminsky at uh, new tribes bible institute i was dating his daughter at the time and uh he led me to christ asked me a few questions and diagnosed that i wasn't a christian which mm -hmm. wouldn't didn't take very much <laughs> right and so uh i accepted christ uh, i know the date only because of what happened the day before this girl and uh so after that, I don't know what happened, but I became very mischievous. Not rebellious, just very mischievous. Loved playing tricks on people and telling jokes and goofing off. And so finally, at the end of the year, uh, the dean, the same dean, came to me and said, I'd like to invite you up to my office. Well, I knew that wasn't good. <laughs> so I went up to his office and he said, we would like to make a deal with you. If you'll leave, we won't kick you out. <laughs> and so I stood up and said, deal, and I left. I think he was, one, happy that I was leaving because his daughter was free now. <laughs> and two, I think he had his hand on the phone waiting to call the Army recruiters as I walked out the door. Because it was just two weeks later and they drafted me, which was very unheard of. So I think he, he copped out on me. <laughs> so I was drafted into the Army, went to basic training and advanced training, and went to NCO school in Fort Benning, Georgia. What year was this, Steve? That would have been 69, the latter part of 69. And I went through uh, uh, nine months of training to become a non-commissioned officer. So I went from a buck private to an E5. Mm -hmm. And I you had the option of taking two things. So I went to... Uh, airborne, which I never could figure out why they wanted to jump out of this plane rather than land it, you know. And then I went to Air, uh, Special Forces. So uh, came out of there, went to Vietnam. <clears throat> My uh, captain in Vietnam was Colin Powell. Uh, quite an interesting stories, and we won't tell those right now, uh, or he'd shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a lot of good experiences there. Yeah. So uh, on uh, August 30th, my birthday, of uh, that first year in Vietnam, uh, we were out on the uh, jungle and we saw 2,000 North Vietnamese soldiers around us. So we knew that we were surrounded and we had 97 men. So we built a perimeter. Uh, we knew we were going to be overrun that night, so we called in a bomb strike on our location and just held it until we were ready. They actually sung happy birthday to me sometime around 9 o'clock. <laughs> and... Uh, I could hear different people around the foxhole making promises. You know, God, if you get me through this, I promise I'll stop this or start this or do something different. Mm -hmm. And kind of bartering with God. And I just looked up into the sky and said, you know, God, I know where I'm going to go if I die. I know if I die, it's entirely up to you. But I'm not going to make you any promises that I know tomorrow I'm not going to keep. And I think he honored that. So... uh about 2 o'clock in the morning, we were overrun by these 2,000 uh, North Vietnamese soldiers and some Chinese that we knew were in the, the group. And uh, I went ahead and called in the bomb strike. Uh, next morning, long story short. So they were queued up, ready to go. They were queued up and ready to go. And they were pretty heavily armed and trained mm -hmm. against our 97 guys. And so the next morning, out of uh, the 97 men that were there, I was the only one left alive. Uh, came walking out of the dust and the... 
the dead bodies and while the Red Cross were picking them up. And I can still remember them just kind of looking at me as I walked across, like, who are you, you know? And so I went back to the rear area. They eventually, a few weeks later, assigned me to a new company. And uh, we went out to, a few weeks later, we were out close to the Laotian border. And uh, I called in a chopper to evac us out. Uh, they all got on. I said I'd stay behind and patrol the perimeter until they got all everybody back in the rear area. Uh, it got about 50, 60 feet in the air, took around, blew up, and killed my second company. I entire everybody on there, including the helicopter crew. Steve, was, let, me, let me ask you something. You were the only one to walk away from two significant engagements. What does that do to a young man when you see everyone die around you yet god keeps you alive yeah i really believe what i said you know i have this uh, i teach at the air force academy in the character and leadership development class and i always tell them this one saying because i'm not allowed to talk about the bible and god and jesus and all that stuff but i say everybody believes in something and that's something you believe in will determine how you live your life Hmm. And uh, and I think that's what I started believing way back then in the mid-60s or late 60s, was I believed in something. And if I really believed in that something, number one, I was going to put all my eggs in that basket. I can even remember telling God sometimes, hey, if this thing is not true, that this is totally by grace plus nothing else, grace in Jesus, then I'm going to buy into it. But, God, you better be ready and you better keep your word because I'm going to give 100%. And if you're lying to me, I'm going to get you. (laughs) And that was kind of the way I I lived my life was I believed that grace was by Jesus and nothing else. And so. So did these two events, were they like proof to you? I think they played out in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They weren't weren't really proof. I think it was just God's way of saying, okay, I I got it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in. And, uh, and, and, and I didn't have to be proven anything. I mean, God is God. Right. <laughs> you know, he could have killed me yeah. any time he wanted. But it did resonate to my, uh, my sergeant and uh, my, my captain and, uh, and my company because they thought I needed some psychiatric treatment. And uh, so they sent me to Saigon for a couple of weeks. And this poor psych guy, I mean, he was, he'd bring me in and ask me all these questions and show me these pictures. Matter of fact, one day I was messing with his mind and he showed me this one picture and he said, tell me what you see in this picture. And I said, I see a naked woman. And he says, uh, oh, okay. And he picked up the second picture and he says, what do you see in this picture? I said, oh, I don't know, maybe five, six naked women. And he says, really? He says, one more picture. He says, what do you see in this picture? I said, I see a whole bunch of naked women running around. He says, well, I think I know your problem. I said, what's that? He said, I think you're a sex maniac. I said, well, how can you say that, Doc? You're the guy with all the dirty pictures. <laughs> and uh, he was just livid. Did you pass your psyche out? No, I didn't. <laughs> but he did come to me after about two weeks, and he says, you know, you're going to have to help me with something. He said somebody who's been through what you've been through in the last four or five months should have some kind of issues you know but i don't you don't seem to have any issues what's the deal and so i told him my testimony just exactly what i said here and so at the end of that he said well if that's all you got i'm gonna have to send you back out to the field (laughs) and so the afternoon i had my rucksack all packed and back out to the field i went came home and fast forward the story and uh when I came home, I did have some issues. I was into alcohol and drugs and women and you name it, I did it. If I didn't do it, it was because it just didn't look like very much fun, you know. Mm-hmm. We go to church on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week, you know. And uh, I had a little Opal GT. I know some of you may not be able to remember what that is. You, you John probably does. Yeah. It's a little two-seater. It looks like a miniature Corvette. Yeah. But, I mean, it literally only has two seats in it. So I had uh, three guys and three girls uh, in the car, <laughs> six people, and we were drunk and stoned and racing this this car. I remember it was a Chevy, but he bumped me, hit me into the gravel. When it came back around, it flipped us six times, end over end. I broke the steering wheel off in my hand, and the police came, stopped us. The two people in the back were thrown out. They stopped the car from spinning round and round. And uh, so we all got out. Nobody had a scratch on them except me. I had a little scratch on my left shoulder. 
And the policeman said, well, the rule is if we see blood, we have to send you to the hospital. So I was sent to the hospital, and after flirting with these nurses for two two hours, they said, we need to get this guy out of here. <laughs> and so they put some mercurochrome on it and a Band-Aid and, uh, and let me go. I was walking out through the emergency room, and first of all, the policeman comes up to me with my my Bible, uh, King James Thompson red letter, <laughs> you know, book, right. and it's dripping with beer. And he hands it to me, and he says, "Here you go, son. You might need this this uh, tomorrow morning." And it was incredible. One of the things that turned my life around, I think, was I literally saw Jesus walking through the door, uh, the, the emergency door, and he walked right up to me, nose to nose. And I don't know if it was a hologram or my imagination or he really was there, but to me it was he was there. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I yeah. really could have reached out and touched yeah. him. And he said, you know, Steve, I kept my word, and maybe you need to start keeping yours. Ooh. And I was just stopped in my tracks. I don't remember what happened the next few hours, but I went to church the next morning. My pastor asked me to tell, he said, you look so different. I said, I, I don't know what it is, but just different. Would you tell? Would you preach this morning? I, you know, you mean wind me up and let me go? I said, sure. You know, <laughs> and so I just told him my testimony. Eight of my friends that grew up in this church came to Christ that morning, who had been in church all their life and were yeah. now 22, 23, 24 years old. And the thing that I always say is, you know, you can go out into your garage and say beep beep all night long, but you'll never be a car. Mm-hmm. And you can go to church all your life and die and go to hell. And so they came to Christ that day. Well, different churches in the area started hearing about it, invited me to come and tell my testimony. The Navigators heard about it in Kansas City, and I came to Kansas City in 1973 and joined the Navigators. Um, uh, it was just an incredible time in my life, but I was very performance-driven. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'd get up in the morning, write my list, and if I didn't get my list, the way I determined when I went to bed was when my list was all crossed off. <laughs> it was very performance-driven. Uh, it was performance for my dad. It was performance for my God and performance for Jesus. You know, and that's what it was really all about. And it wasn't until about 1992 or 93 that I heard a message from John Lynch, not the football player, but the guy out of Arizona, true-faced that it's not about performance, that what really God wants out of us is just to trust Him, to have that relationship of trusting in Him. So, Steve, working with the leaders that you work with, have you found that that's a mindset that a lot of leaders have? Everything is very performance-driven. That's just the paradigm that a lot of us are locked into. Oh, absolutely. And Uh, how do you help people move from that to... A new paradigm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, that's exactly right. Is you have to break the old paradigm first. Yeah. You know, you've got to start letting things go. What we would probably call in the Christian world submitting to God. Mm-hmm. But I look at it in a different way. It's not necessarily submitting what we would think of in a mental picture, you know, like a slave to a master. It's really submitting and letting things go of your own self and submitting to what God has for you, what he wants for you. And so I, I went through a lot of those things myself. In 1982, I got divorced. I took another nosedive in my life. Uh, mm. And again, you know, turned to, gosh, I can't, I can't even begin to explain what I turned out to be. I was working for Citicorp, making a million three a year. I was living in South Dakota, and they transferred me to different places. But I became uh, angry at myself, my wife, my, my God, my kids people around me i just took it out at anybody who came close where did that come from anger very deep anger uh in at the divorce well i thought that i'd been fair to god you know i'd done what he wanted me to do and how can you do this to me mm-hmm. right i mean this coming is not, from a performance based right. worldview obviously you're doing this all this performance and so god should be yeah. reciprocating reciprocating kind of absolutely that thing to the jesus uh, meet me in the emergency room well i yeah. am keeping my word and you're you backed out on your word right yeah. and uh and, and his word was i wasn't looking at it in the right way it wasn't yeah. about performance it was about trusting him and so i became known in city corp as the make it happen guy uh, people cowered around me. You know, I'd come into work in the morning and they'd all bow their head and not look at me because they were afraid that they were the one I was going to fire next, you know. Mm. And I was very uh, hostile and aggressive and abusive to people. And uh, uh, you you can get the picture of that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. 
Yeah, I've worked for a number of guys like that. Yeah. <laughs> I probably was one of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one day, about 12 years later, I woke up, came to the bathroom, and I was standing in front of the bathroom, pardon the expression, naked, literally. And I just started to look at myself in the mirror. So this is 12 years after you this is started probably, down this road of anger? What I call my passionate pursuit of my prodigal journey. Okay. Because I'm still the guy who is, if, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. So this you know? was a long trip. <laughs> it's a long, long trip. Okay. I think uh, most people think, they read that story of the prodigal son mm-hmm. in the Bible, and they think that was just a couple of days or weeks, yeah. maybe. If he only took a couple of days to get through his prodigal journey experience, he was just a wimp. Well, he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't a right. prodigal. He was just running away from home. Right. <laughs> but I think a prodigal doesn't come to the end of his line until he's at the bottom of the barrel, and there just isn't any way out. Then he comes home to the father. What was your bottom of the barrel? This this image of me in the in the mirror. Yeah. I just said, you know, I uh, I was still fighting with my wife over the divorce. She had her list. I had my list. And we were fighting over some of the stupidest things, ashtrays, yeah. uh, uh, pictures on the wall. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of money. We had a new house, new cars, new furniture. But we were fighting over these stupid things. Just to fight. Just, fighting, to, fight. just to fight. Was, well, you got to win. Right. You know, that was my whole life was you got to win. Couldn't be weak. Yeah, try right. up. I'm not losing this battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you know, I really don't like you. I don't like the way you're living. I don't like the way you treat people. I don't like who. I don't like anything at all about you. And I just dropped my knees, crying in my tears. I was just, I don't mean weeping. I was boo-hooing, you know. And I just said, Jesus, I want to come back to the Father, but I don't know how. I don't know how to get there from here. Mm. Will you help me? Mm-hmm. And little by little, he started showing me the way back to the Father. And um, that next day after this moment what did you notice i packed my tent Mm -hmm. (laughs) i went to my tent experience Mm -hmm. i I literally did i had a case of pork and beans so it was a good thing i was alone i had uh, a little bit of water (laughs) okay that didn't go over very well i had a little bit of water in my tent and a sleeping bag my bible and a flashlight and i went up into the middle of the mountains in uh in uh, west virginia and I was, I can still remember when the, everything was all set up, I walked into the tent, sat down in a little area, pulled in some wood, and I said, God, I ain't leaving here until you tell me something. I don't care how long it takes. And so I would read my Bible a little bit, get up and walk around, maybe take a cat nap, start a little fire, eat some pork and beans, read the Bible some more, you know, just over and over and over for a week. And finally, about a week or a little bit later, uh, it was just like it was a clear voice came to me and said, Steve, don't return evil for evil. Hmm. Whatever she wants, you give it to her. So uh, after I counted all the 10 experience, I went to the attorney with my list, and I gave it to him, and he said, what's this? I said, that's my list. I said, I want you to take everything on my list, and I want you to put it on her list. And he looked at me and said, are you serious? You, you really want to do this? I said, yep, I fired my attorney. I don't have support anymore. I don't need to go to court because I'm fighting for nothing. And uh, I just want to get it over with. And I said, here it is. And, you know, uh, I don't know if she, she'll listen to this someday, but even to this day when we talk about kids or grandkids, she, she always says, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did. I mean, knowing who you were and what you did and what we were, what we had to Tension that was there. So yeah. you gave her everything she wanted, everything. and then you gave her everything that was on your list. Everything so on you my just... list. I walked away with nine boxes of clothes, <laughs> hmm. underwear, t-shirts, huh. you know, things like that. What Second, was the feeling you had as you walked away with your nine boxes? Freedom. Hmm. You know how free it is when you don't have mm-hmm. anything to hold you down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go places, you can do things, you can be yeah. all kind of things. So the second thing he told me was uh, Hebrews 12, uh, verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. And I'll paraphrase it. But basically he said, I want you to get out of this dirt, dust yourself off, and get back on the path that I prepared for you. And as you walk down this path with your weak legs and your wobbly arms, you're going to see other people right beside you with weak legs and wobbly arms. And I want you to share with them how to get out of this mess Hmm. from your failures not your strengths and so that's what i've been doing the last 15 years is saying here's where i failed 
I've been here before and I know how to get out. Wouldn't you like some help? You know? And so it's amazing how many people I run into that are divorced, that are still mm-hmm. struggling with that whole process, you know, um, that are going through failures of some kind or another. So it's just really a lot of fun because that's what I really believe that Jesus doesn't use us because we're the only ones that he can find that we're broken. He can't use us until we are broken. He won't use us until he he only uses broken people. So I look for people who uh, can come and share in some of the events that we have that are broken. And they've learned from that how to give that brokenness back to God. That's what Paul did. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, God, three times I've asked you to heal me of this thorn in the flesh, which Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what it was. I have some ideas, but we won't share those. But God says, no way. No way, Jose. Mm -hmm. And so Paul finally says, okay, so how am I going to deal with this? He says, I'm going to, and this is my definition for success. I'm going to take my grace and infuse it into your failure, and it's going to create perfection. Well, let's say that again. Your definition I'm going of to take, This is the quote of the day. <laughs> I'm going to take my grace, Jesus mm-hmm. says. I'm going to infuse it into your weakness, and that equals perfection. Go back and read Second uh, Corinthians. That's what Paul says. Mm-hmm. My grace is sufficient for you. And he takes our failures, puts his grace into it, and whoosh, Perfect things come out of it. Now, mm-hmm. I've never seen that done before, but only God can do that. I like that. A friend of mine always talks about that perfection or excellence is the standard, but grace is the word. Mm. We're always striving for to become better in everything that we do and how we do it. But we're always, but everything's a practice session because we're never going to do it well. Right. And we have to have that grace, not only to forgive ourselves, but to bring that grace in from God to realize that, you know, failure is just one outcome. Yeah. Right? And it's something that we learn from so that next time we're just maybe a little bit better and a little bit better. Oh, that's what a I know. That's what uh, Albert, uh, uh, Thomas Edison said. He says, I haven't uh, failed to create a light bulb. I've learned 10,000 ways that it won't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, this led you into work in the government. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your, your time in the government and then how that led you into what you're doing now. Sure. So I um, was working with uh, a, a, a technology company as uh-huh. a credit card center manager up in Cleveland, and we'd done a lot of high-tech security things. And in, the, in the credit card industry, a transaction is not about information. It's about money, and if you lose a transaction, you've lost money. Mm-hmm. So we'd put a lot of security practices and technology in place. And this company asked if I would come to Washington, D.C. and start up their, their security practice with the federal government. I didn't know beans about the federal government. I mean that entirely. And I think a lot of people really don't know very much about their government and how it runs and works. And I would be surprised if most people outside the D.C. area could tell you could name three agencies in the federal government, excluding the White House. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I came there and they said, well, your first project is up at Camp David. And I said, well, why does a camp need security? You know, I'm thinking horseback riding and canoeing and (laughs) archery range. (laughs) Teen summer camp. uh, So I I quickly learned why they needed security, and I wrote uh, my team, about five guys, I wrote a document for the government of how to implement security uh, from beginning to end. It got way too much attention, uh, and it got into OSD and then into the White House, and they asked if I would come down. What's OSD? Office of Secretary of Defense. Sorry about that. It's an agency I don't know about. Oh, the federal government has. You can write a whole book on acronyms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, so I was asked to come down and serve in the White House to the uh, executive office of the president. And uh, one of my favorite buildings, if you've never seen that, it's very architectural. And uh, uh, so I did a couple of things that got me over into the White House reporting to Bush Sr., and I was the national security uh, actually reporting into the executive offices of the, the president. And uh, we won't mention names there. <laughs> and uh, eventually got reporting to Condoleezza Rice and um, wrote a lot of policy procedures, um, more strategy type things, and then more concepts. Uh, kind of got into that. And then was in, uh, asked to take over the uh, cyber position uh, in the White House as reporting to the, the president. 
And so I worked there for Bush Sr., Clinton, uh, 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 George W. Bush, and um, uh, one administration of Obama. And my wife and I uh, just had a fun time there. She was a, a stock, not a stockbroker, but an investment broker. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, when you're in cyber, especially in the early days of it, I actually, nobody knows what cyber was in the early stages. As a matter of fact, I had an email come to me one time, and it spelled cyber, S-Y-B-E-R. I was like, okay, this guy doesn't know what cyber is. <laughs> but uh, everything was kind of stuck on cyber, especially after September 11. And uh, so we really had a long time before we really understood what cyber was. I have a little different opinion on cyber that it's, much more than just technology, which was what a lot of people look at today, is they always run to the technology side. How do I do intrusion detection, monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's a, and I know that's not part of this discussion, but it's a much bigger picture. There's a a physical component of cyber, a personnel component, and an environmental component, which I think we're dealing with in the United States still from September 11. But that's another story. So at what point did you drop to your knees naked in front of the mirror and give your life to God. Yeah. What year was that? That was probably 97, I think, something like that. So it's a little bit longer than 12 years. So you were at the White House at the time. I was working in the White House at the time. I was, and uh, I was single. I, uh, long story, but I had bought the camera that I always wanted in my life, a Nikon. Yeah. Uh, it was the old film type, not the digital. Yeah. And I was still sitting in, in the uh, the mall in the hallway trying to figure out how, how to put film in this stupid thing. And this lady comes over and says, are you our photographer for the day? And I said, well, I could be. <laughs> and so she invites you. still have a mischievous <laughs> side, don't you? It comes out. So she says, well, we Nordstrom has a runway model display on this afternoon, and we need a photographer. I mean, I didn't even know how to put film in this thing. So I put film in it, finally figured it out, and I'm going over there. I'm laying on my back taking pictures and all these goofy things, you know. And you were working at the White House also? Well, that was my real job. This was just for fun. And so at the end, she gave me $1,000 for the pictures. I had them develop, put them into a book. And all these models, uh, here I am single, working in the White House, all these models would come and say, hey, would you come over and take some pictures for me? I want to round out my, my portfolio. And so I'd come over taking pictures, you know, and of course I'd get a phone number and, and ask him out to a dinner to, at the White House, which is not too hard to do. Matter of fact, uh, Bush Sr. asked me one time, how do you find all these beautiful girls? <laughs> I said, well, sir, it's not too hard to get somebody to come to a banquet to, at the White House, you know. <laughs> and his wife was always trying to send part of her staff my way. You know, here, are these, here I am, 45 years old, and, yeah. and she's bringing 20-year-old women from... Texas, you know, with their blonde hair, big blonde hair and tall model type. And I told her one time, I said, you know, I don't think you're looking in the same mirror I am. <laughs> so I would get these girls to come in, uh, late women to come with me in, in, into the, to the uh, dinners. And um, where were we going with that? <laughs> so 97 is when you really gave yourself back to God. Yeah, you had right. your 10 experience. You gave your ex-wife all the stuff. Yep. Did the people around you see a, a real change? Did they notice it? Mm, absolutely. Uh, I, what really changed my uh, direction in life and really give my life to Christ. I was really, you know, this whole 12 or so years that I was dealing with God, I still had a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. important to understand when you deal with prodigals. Uh, there's a ministry out of uh, Pittsburgh called The Journey, and, and Ron Moore only deals with prodigal people. But uh, when you deal with prodigals, you got to remember, he still has a great relation. He wants to have a great relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But he likes and enjoys the fun of sin. And I always tell people, you know, there's five things that you need to remember when you follow Satan. Number one, he's going to take you a lot further than you wanted to go. Number two, you're going to have to pay a lot more than you originally wanted to pay. It's going to cost you. Number three, he's going to turn you into something you never thought you could be. Number five, you're going to do things you didn't have any imagine that you, th- you thought you could do. I'm not going to do that. Well, let me tell you, when you follow Satan, you can do anything. Of the, of the sin that he wants to involve you in. So I started not doing some of those things and started to doing the things that I want, that God wanted me to do. You bring up an important point that 
path that leads to that place, the bottom of the barrel yeah. you spoke yeah. about. It's all these very small decisions that at the time seem very inconsequential, don't it's they? But when added slope. together, but you can also reverse the process. Absolutely. There's small a, decisions that start to lead you out of there can yield incredible results in our lives. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, I actually, uh, in, in two weeks, I'm speaking on the topic of uh, how to get out of the life in the valley is what mm. I call it. Life in the valley. And it's how do you get into the valley? And that's this valley of sin. Mm -hmm. And then there's the turnaround. How do I get out? And uh, getting accountability is one of the most important things. Having somebody who will walk with you through that process of coming back and hold your feet to the fire. You know, and and uh, I still have accountability groups today. Matter of fact, one of my most fun ones is a virtual accountability I have with a, a group of guys that some of them are in the U.S. and some of them are in internationally. Mm -hmm. Every Thursday morning we have a conference call and we ask uh, four questions. Uh, how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with your wife? How are you doing financially? And the fourth question is the most important, is is there something that you lied to us about today? Mm. And then you gotta make a decision, am I gonna tell them a lie, or am I gonna belly up? Tell a lie about the lie. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with my boys, you know, raising three, three sons and two are teenagers now, what we consistently talk about is an A decision or a B decision, right? And an A decision is usually the harder decision, but that's the one that moves you up. Mm. A B decision is an easier decision, that moves you down because yeah. I also want to do that in my life. Everything that comes up, every thought that comes in my head, every interaction I have with a client or a customer or business strategy, is it an A decision that honors God or is it a B decision that doesn't? Yeah. And yeah. if I always focus on, if I can make a majority of my decisions A decisions, I'm moving in the right direction. Yeah. But to have an accountability group to bounce that off of is yeah. a great idea. I think people need to really be part of those kind of relationships. Yeah. So what really turned me around, though, was a song. Hmm. Uh, Casting Crowns hmm. has a song called The Voice of Truth. And you know, God would always come to me during these 12 years and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to get you back into the Navigators. I'd like to have a better relationship with you, Steve. And I always have a really good excuse not to. New girlfriend, new, new, new job assignment, a new car, a, a vacation that was coming up. And, you know, God would go away and he'd come back in a year or so and say, you know, Steve, we've talked about this a couple of times before and I'd really like to have a good relationship with you. And I remember towards the end of my prodigal journey, he came to me and said, Steve, here's the deal. I'm going to ask you one more time to get back in a right relationship with me and rejoin the Navigators. I don't know what was so important about that to God, but he wanted me back in the Navigators. And, uh, was it a hard decision to leave those circles of power in D.C. and move not, back to Colorado? Not not until I heard this song. It was hard until I heard this, and I'll tell you about that song. Yeah. So he said, but here's the deal. I'm only going to ask you one more time. And mm. after that, I'm going to go away and leave you alone. I won't ever ask you again. And so I knew it was the moment of truth. And, uh, did that scare you? It did. The finality of that? It did. Yeah, and then I heard this song, "The Voice of Truth." And now I'm not a good singer. Yeah. Matter of fact, a, a guy a couple of weeks ago in church turned around and kept looking at me, and I said, "Well, it says to make a joyful noise unto the Lord." He said, "I've heard you sing. There ain't nothing joyful about it." <laughs> but uh, the the song kind of goes like you know he hears the the voice of these giants. They're telling he's just going to fail. He's going to fall flat on his face. Everybody's going to laugh at him, and, and he's going to be an embarrassment. And he hears all these crash of the waves against the boat, and you know he's afraid of, of drowning and the sharks that are out there. And but there's this voice of truth that comes to him and says, "Just trust me. Just let go. Step out of the boat. Hit the giant with a a, a rock, and follow me. Just trust me." And that's what I did, was I said, okay, I'm going to trust you. Now, I had just started uh, seeing my wife at this time. This is like 2005 when I was dealing with this mess. And, and, and it was kind of leading my life, you know, a, a good spiritual life, nothing wrong with it. I was Sunday school teacher and had some Bible studies going. was just starting to get back involved with my wife. I was making a good salary, walk, working at the White House. I met my wife on Perfect Match on September uh, 17th, 
And so we started hitting it off, got emails going. You know, I asked her out for a first date, which was very scary. I don't know why. <laughs> she was from Texas, Lubbock, Texas. She grew up on a, a cotton ranch and picked cotton when she was a little girl, so I refer to her as my cotton-picking wife. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, so one day God says, I want you to get back involved with the Navigators. So here I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to have to you know, move away from this lucrative and powerful position, mm-hmm. and I've got to go tell my wife this, you know. And I told her, I, I, we went out to dinner one night, I told her what God was leading me to do, and she says, that's incredible, I've been praying about doing something like that myself. <laughs> wow. So God had just already lined this all up. Mm-hmm. And I could tell you just incredible story after incredible story of God creating adventures for us to knit us together, number one, but two, just to show us, I've already got you covered, I've got your back covered, you know. And uh, so we both joined the Navigators, probably around 98, I think it was, and uh, uh, left our jobs probably in uh, 2010, I think it was, and went to Florida for a little while with the Navigators, started lifted the flag there, came back to D.C., started a ministry called uh, Faith at Work. Let me tell you, that was scary because we, I don't know how I thought of it, but there were eight of us navigators in the D.C. area that said, what if we just got together on Wednesday? Because it's so far to travel and get around in D.C. What if we just got together on Wednesday and had a conference call? We'll pray together. We'll read a piece of scripture, talk about it, and then half an hour. Okay. So as you go into this, Steve, let me make a quick comment. You know, as people are out there and they're in their... I guess seeking some of the you know some of the powerful events you've had in your life, right? And you've come into a lot of these kind of on your own because you've you've hit these points where you just have to reach up to God. But when we're in relationship with people, when we're being discipled with others, when we have friends that can hold us accountable and mentorship, one of the goals that we want to do with this that's just close to our heart is really create a conduit from people who are just listening to this, driving in their car, to be part of you know, groups and organizations and relationships. And that's why, I, as you start to share about faith at work, I really want people to understand that it's really important to take a next step mm-hmm. and get around and plug into groups where you can you can learn and you can grow and you can be around people like you're hearing from Steve and Steve's heart and what he's learned. So uh, I'd love for you to share now exactly what this ministry, Faith at Work, is, what it's grown over the last couple of years, because I think it's really blown your mind uh, what's happened, right? Yeah. And, and, and how it serves people. Yeah. And when you hear this story, don't think of, wow, what, a, what an incredible guy Steve is. He's really outside the box. You know, uh, it, it really just happened. I mean, mm-hmm. God just made it happen. Uh, and I would just happen to be the guy there that God says, I think I'll use you. You know, I could use a dumb rock, but I'll use you. <laughs> and uh, so we started this conference call. And at the end of the first time, November 2nd, uh, 2011, one of the people asked, could I invite some other people to join the conference call with us tomorrow? And I said, I don't know why not. So the next week, we had about 50 people on the phone call. The next week, we had about 100 and some on the phone call. The next week, I mean, it just, within three months, we had 10,000 people who were participating in these conference calls and and joining in. Uh, there's a, a, a This pers- is all across the country. All across the country. So social media, you know, well, at that time, we didn't have social media, but I didn't even have a website. It was really just a distribution list where they could come and, and join. And then at the bottom of the email said, hey, forward this to some friends. Well, they st- they started doing it. And yeah. this conference call was really set up. If I'm sitting there and I'm at work and I want to host a Bible study and and share this with other people, whether they're believers or not, right. you're creating an opportunity over lunch. I bring in a sack lunch and I dial the conference call number and I'm sitting around with my friends. Yep. And you are you're preparing teaching, but it's not just that. It's interactive, right? I can participate. Right. I can talk. and. Right. Originally, it wasn't called Faith at Work. It was just a conference call. Mm-hmm. And, then, and finally, somebody said, you know, we should call this Faith at Work because that's what we're doing is we're not pulling people out of the workplace. 
were getting the gospel message right in on their desktop. Mm-hmm. You know, so they can use their iPhone to call in. They can use their lunch, brown bag lunch, and they're not using any of the assets of the company. They're using their own personal time for lunch. They may be able to multi-process. You know, you call in, put it on mute, and do your PowerPoint emails or your project plan while you're just listening. But we were getting the gospel message. I personally believe that the gospel, the the word of God, Jesus is alive and living and when you release that word that gospel wherever it is it's going to start being pac-man remember that game mm-hmm. some people won't remember that but <laughs> it's little pac-man it goes around and starts gobbling up people's lives and that puts them on their radar i've got another story i'll tell you sometime but uh, a guy who i witnessed to and i just i don't know him i don't know his email i don't know his phone number i'll never see him again but I shared the word with him, and I know that the word is going to start tracking him and put him on his radar. Scott was his name out of Florida. but um, And so that's what we were trying to do is get the gospel message into places where we couldn't go. I mean, who can walk into the White House and say, I want to have a Bible study? Mm-hmm. Who can walk into the Pentagon and say, I want to have a Bible study over here? But I can have a conference call. And so that's what we have been trying to do is think about how do I get the gospel message? I mean, that's the 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 mission statement of the navigators is advancing the gospel of jesus and his kingdom into the nations through spiritual generations of laborers living and discipling among the lost now, how many people participate now uh it's up to fifty-five thousand. Uh, and how, how do people find out about this steve you can go to myfaw.org and there's a place where you can connect. You put your name and your email and your phone number and stuff like that in, and it puts you on the distribution list every week, except for holidays, but there's a, uh, an invitation that goes out on Monday morning, about nine o'clock, and a, a reminder on Wednesday. So if you're on that distribution, you'll, you'll start getting those invitations. So we'll make sure we put this in our show notes so people can go out there and they can sign up and be oh, part you. of the email list and they can uh, get the instructions on how to dial in. And you do it two different times a week, right? So you two can cover the time zones across country. That's correct. Right now we do it 12 o'clock. It's always at 12 o'clock. One of them at Eastern Standard Time and another one at Mountain Standard Time. And next year we're going to open up Central Standard Time and Pacific Standard Time, which scares me to death. <laughs> get those Californians on there. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, uh, right now we have some reservation of how many people we can actually put on a a phone call or or manage to but we've got some incredible speakers that have been on here through throughout the last three years and i mean people from literally all over the world uh who actually call us and say hey can i be a speaker on faith at work and uh i won't mention any names or drop any names but i'll tell you some of them will just blow your socks off and what sorts of topics do you guys talk about it's always related around the work so last year we went through the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is mentioned 157 times in the Bible. 125 of those times are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Of those 125 times, over half of the time that Jesus mentions the term, the kingdom of God, he uses a business example to explain what the kingdom of God is like. So I think business is pretty important to God. And so we've been taking those and trying to apply them to our workplace. How do I serve like the farmer who sowed seed? Mm-hmm. How do I how do I earn my money like the the, the the individual who came at five o'clock in the afternoon, worked one hour, and got paid the same for the as the ones who had been there in there early? How does that apply to my job? So all kind of things that we can uh, that are applicable. This year we've been going through just a fun series on called um, lessons learned on my way to heaven, and so we invite people in who've been broken who failed at some place or another and say, come in here on the phone and just share with us what your brokenness is and how did you get out of that mess? You know, and so we've really been, had a lot of fun with that this year. Hmm. Next year, we're going to be going through a series called uh, Basic Bible Guide. Not so much doctrine or teaching involved in it, but we're going to take the whole Bible and you can learn everything about it from beginning to end. What happened first? You know, the, the, the creation, the Adam and Eve, the sin, and kind of chronologically all the way is to the Is that going through Daniel Kennedy's? It is. Daniel Kennedy uh, is actually helping me now. He's uh, come alongside and, and, and 
is working on faith at work, but we're going to use his material to go through the Bible next week. It's kind of like the old uh, series you used to be able to go to called uh, Walk Through the Bible. Well, that's kind of what we're going to be doing uh, and take from beginning to end. So, and I've read Daniel's; it's 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 fabulous, and we'll put mm-hmm. we'll put that in our show notes too, so people can oh. go check that out and sure and, and see what he's doing. So, you know, as we wrap up here, any final thoughts that you would leave with leaders? Maybe something that guides you every day or, you know, as you've gone through these seasons in your life and matured into the person that you are today as you're out equipping and inspiring others. What yeah. what would you like to leave with folks as they're... I'll leave you with the same thing that I believe I read my, leave my cadets with when I teach the class there. And it's everybody believes in something and that something you believe in will determine how you live your life. So everybody believes in something, and that's, but that's something you believe in determines how you live your life right that is powerful well thank you so much steve for sharing today i really appreciate it any last comments steve thank you steve it was awesome (laughs) thank you the website steve mentioned to sign up for the navigator's weekly faith at work phone call is myfaw.org that's myfaw.org Now, Steve's position at The Navigators is a donor-supported position, so if you see the value in his work and would love to be a monthly supporter or just give a one-time tax-deductible gift, I know it would mean a ton to Steve and Cynthia. Just go to that website, myfaw.org, and click on the Support tab. The link is also embedded into the description of this MP3 if you're listening on your phone or tablet, and it will also be in the show notes on our webpage, eternalleadership.com. Speaking of us, I'd love to invite you to our private LinkedIn group. It's a place where you can interact with John, myself, and many other thought leaders and professionals just like yourselves. Just go to LinkedIn and type eternal leadership in the search box and look for our group. Also, you can connect with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash eternal leadership. And of course, our website, eternalleadership.com. And there you can go check out past episodes, ways to subscribe to our podcast, links to our Facebook page and LinkedIn group, as well as John's executive coaching page, a whole lot more. It's eternalleadership.com. This episode of Eternal Leadership was recorded at Mission Coffee Roasters in Colorado Springs. Special thanks to Brett and his wonderful staff. Be sure to check them out, missioncoffeeroasters.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, what can happen in a workplace when there's a real focus on prayer in the business? Everything from um, people being healed in the workplace as, as an owner or as people pray over each other being healed to um, revenue streams seemingly miraculously coming into play. We had one client that hired us because she wanted more of God in her business. And she doesn't even own the business. She's a territorial sales manager. We met with her the second week of June and she had zero revenue to date in her pipeline, actually sold in her, in her, in her business for that month. And uh, literally within a week of engaging with us and letting us pray and intercede with her, We had a two-hour session with her face-to-face, and then um, our intercessors prayed for her. Within one week, all the revenues for the month she needed came in. Amy Everett from Marketplace Rock talks to us about how her organization is partnering with businesses and seeing amazing things happen. That's next time on Eternal Leadership. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.